You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Because sometimes when you plant dragon teeth, dudes grow. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We have a very special guest joining us this week. Please use the word bloody in your description. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Jen wrote this. She's much more British than me. 13 years. <laughs> we are so excited to have the bloody brilliant Liv Albert, host of Let's Talk About... Wait, hold up. I have to do the song. Let's Talk About Myths, baby. Here with us on the podcast. So... Come and join us for a conversation about Dionysus, mythology, ancient Greek theater, and a whole fuck ton more. (laughs) So, hi, Liv. Hi. Can I just appreciate how much you added fuck ton into this? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, there is a time we tell all the guests this when we were first launching this podcast where I was like, maybe we could go for like educational funding and do some stuff with colleges or high schools. And Jenny is like, oh, fuck no. And then we were got to, I think, our first Ancient Vampires episode where we talked about them being the suck and fuck vampires. And I was like, well, that's the seal. And that was you, Jen. I will point. I wasn't the one who cracked first. It was you. (laughs) I cannot fucking imagine. My favorite is we still get like, I think, a sixth grade Latin class that tweets us. The teacher tweets us all the time. But what a good resource we are. We're like, oh, boy, you are either very cool or very misguided. (laughs) I have a lot of children that listen to me and I hear about it a lot. And I'm like, I mean, I guess I respect your parents for teaching you this stuff early on. But it still seems a little bit much. (laughs) Not going to dial it back, though. (laughs) 
No, no. Just as we settle into it, it's just going to get worse. So Liv, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast and what made you decide to get into podcasting? I would love to. So my podcast is uh, similar to this, a very curse word filled podcast about ancient Greek mythology, also Roman, especially right now as I delve into the Aeneid. It's storytelling, but it's also me talking like this in a very casual kind of way and incredibly feminist in the way I like to focus on those stories, which is the thing I like best. Yeah. Yeah. And I got into it simply because I... Uh, needed a hobby and was obsessed with podcasts and briefly had a job I hated more than anything and uh, so desperately needed an outlet and something to do. And uh, now it's been a couple years since then. And that's not the case. I'm just still going because it's awesome. (laughs) Definitely. We are both fans of your podcast. Jen was actually the one who introduced me to Let's Talk About Myths Baby. And I listened to you on the treadmill a lot. This is like a thing we hear about other people do with ours too. Like you're exercising, you want to keep your mind off of like how much it sucks that you are exercising. And um, the other day, I think it was like either this week or last week, I was listening to your Medea series and I was supposed to go for 30 minutes on the treadmill. I wound up going for like an hour and kind of binging the series because I wanted to find out what happened next, even though I know the story. So really good storytelling. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I'm so glad I got you so fit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have great endurance now. (laughs) Yeah, it's all because of Medea. I mean, that's a lot about her. (laughs) All props to Medea. Absolutely. I feel like she'd approve. (laughs) So on a slightly separate note, what is your favorite myth that you've covered so far? I think I often have trouble answering this, but then I still always land on Medusa. So I think I just need to accept that my favorite myth is that of Medusa, but mostly because you can get so much out of it and there's so many different versions and you can kind of take what you want and then since I've covered it too people have come to me with all these different theories that make it so much deeper and so much more pro-woman if you know if you want to think about it that way it's fascinating regardless but I think it's one of those ones that you can just get so much out of it for so long I had never thought of that myth that way until I heard you tell it that way and then I just got really angry And then I just, everyone I met, I was just like, I'm going to tell you the real story of Medusa and why you're all wrong. (laughs) My poor husband was like, all right, dial it down to like, okay, can we be at a seven and not a 22? I was like, no. No, it's important. I might have got a little stabby. I was like cutting something at the time. He was like, all right, just put the knife down. (laughs) Don't tell me to dial back the feminism while I'm literally cutting things with a knife. (laughs) It's dangerous. Yeah. A lot of times, like, he doesn't know. So, like, we were talking about something, maybe something in Yule. And I was, like, telling him some ridiculous story about, I think it was Thor's goats. And he was like, just wait a minute. I just, my brain can't get around what you're talking about. And I'm like, okay, there are goats that come to you at Christmas time. <laughs> and he's like, but were they in the Marvel movies? I'm like, no. Yeah, it's not super <laughs> mythological. <laughs> so... On this related sort of tangent, what myth, god, goddess, monster that you've covered on your podcast besides Medusa has surprised you the most? Medea, because I think we're all so used to this version of Medea where it's like, well, this woman went crazy and she killed her kids. You know, she pulled a Medea and that's entirely inaccurate, you know? And so if you actually look really deep into her story, she is so sympathetic and sure you don't love that she killed her children. But basically every other thing about her is so sympathetic that it's it's a lot easier to overlook the killing of her children or understand why she felt like she had to do it. 
And I think that's something that really struck me when I was listening to your Medea series was how much it emphasized like how Euripides brings us along. We follow her on every step of um, what she does. And I'm sure this is a story that everybody knew. Euripides is like taking us along on this journey with this woman and then brings us to the end where we we're like on her side by the time she kills her children. And that's like such a like strong act of storytelling there. But that's a Euripides thing too, right? Like it's not a story that people knew like that. Like Euripides was actually doing something incredibly different and he shocked people with that telling. So it wasn't necessarily that people, like people knew the story of Medea, but they didn't see her sympathetic either. And then Euripides comes in with like, hey, like let's look at why she did this. Like let's really dive into her as a person and where she's been and what she's seen and how she got to this point. And so I think it's really Euripides that made her even remotely sympathetic but he's just I mean he's a person on himself like he's completely different from everybody else of his time he totally is yeah he's I mean he's just completely fascinating and he lost for that play right like it wasn't like it was particularly well received he didn't win the competition that he was in I don't think he was particularly well respected in his time a little bit more so after his death you know he was people knew who he was but he wasn't what he is now well yeah because he literally went into the competition and was like I am gonna turn your myths on their head my first introduction was the Trojan women which when you think about how subversive that is you've got all the great heroes of the Trojan war who are now dividing up the women who are spoils most of the play is told from like the point of view of Hecuba and Andromache and a little bit from Cassandra, but most of it is about these women who have been left behind in this chorus of women and what happens after war. And when you see these men coming through, they are not brave Agamemnon or Odysseus or anything else. They are like foreigners who are just peeling women off and taking them away. And you get to the climax of the play, which I've talked about many times, which is the murdering of an infant. And you're just like, oh, that is what happens in war. My husband probably did this. You, know, you have to think about the audience who's watching this in a huge open air theater for the Great Dionysia, which is their big play festival to honor the god Dionysus. And you must have just been looking at the people around you and been like, I don't know how to feel about any of you. Yeah, what am I watching right now? Yeah, when I wanted to cover that story in the podcast, I I had, you know, versions of it told from, you know, secondary sources, but I wanted so desperately to tell Euripides' story that I went to so many different bookstores in the city trying to find a copy because it was particularly hard to find that one. I called around and went to like five different places before I finally found a copy. And I had to do that episode so last minute because I was just, I'm not going to do it without Euripides' version. He was just the best for women overall, you know? His versions of stories and the way they included women is just so completely different from the other two that we have surviving. That's actually why I felt like I had to do Medea again, because technically I'd done it, but like, I mean, I think she was in my fourth or fifth episode of the podcast and I, it was so surface level. And I had to do that with the back eye too, because it's just so surface level and so basic. I just felt like it was so necessary to really go into Medea's story after I'd learned more about her from that, since that first episode I did. It's just so much more fascinating than I knew before. I think listening to your episode on Medea, like it had been so long since I had um, like, I think I might have read that play in college ages and ages ago, but like just how subversive the playwright was for his time, because we've been so immersed in how incredibly patriarchal this society is and just how crushingly sexist it was. And the, the idea that women have a side to their story that might drive them to do these things because this is the way the society is like that is a subversive message in this time period. Yeah. 
You were talking about your Medusa episode back a couple minutes ago, too. And I like was thinking about that. That was another one that I was listening to on the treadmill. (laughs) And I think that like what makes the way you tell these stories so powerful to me is how unapologetically and unabashedly you refuse to sugarcoat the shit that went down, you know, especially when you listen to the Medusa episode and you're like, nope, this was rape and this is what happened. And I don't think that I had really understood the story in that way either, except when Jen told me about it and then I had to listen to the episode. And I was like, wait, is that how Medusa went? I remember she had snakes and then someone killed her. Like, I don't know. I know Jen and I, and I'm sure you have this too, when you are reading the classics, it's like as a woman reading these stories, it's a little bit like, being low-level punched in the face. It's like, all right, I am reading a story about a woman being raped, and apparently that's fine, or I'm reading this extremely sexist passage. Apparently that's fine. Like, my teacher isn't making a comment on this. Like, we're talking about totally different things in the classroom. And just not having these things that seem so obvious to us be foremost in everyone's mind. And, like, having a viewpoint that really talks about it without sugarcoating it is just like, it's like catharsis. You know, it's like what we talked about in our Dionysus episode, the last one we recorded, where everybody's heart beats at the same time and feeling the same thing. It's like all the women listening, like all of our hearts beat at the same time. It's like, yes, finally, someone's seeing it this way. Yeah, that's exactly why I started the podcast. So, (laughs) (laughs) but it is because I would just tell my friends the stories. I'm like, no, Zeus like raped everybody. That's his thing everybody and then he's Zeus and he's portrayed like I always think about you know Disney's Hercules and that Zeus who's like this warm and loving and oh he's such a wonderful father and husband and that's the Zeus that you often get not quite to that level but still you know he's rarely portrayed for what he was because they also used words like like they never used the word rape basically they use word like lay with or oh and he took her or seduced always seduced kidnapped yeah carried off yeah carried off is such a good one because they wouldn't have said kidnapped you know they would have said carried off and definitely seduced as if well he just convinced her as if that's a thing So I just would read those all the time. And I did have a particularly great mythology prof in university. I think back and I think she was pretty good about that kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't her class to come at it from the lens that I want to. And so I just kind of was like, well, if I'm going to start a podcast and I deeply love mythology to the point of like, just being a lunatic, then I might as well tell it this way. I just think about it like all the time. (laughs) Same. Absolutely the same. (laughs) Like when we started this podcast, we were very like drawn down the middle because Jenny's like, we were ancient history. And I was like, and mythology. She's like, no, you have to actually get the history behind the mythology. I was like, but do I? Every once in a while, I'll add history into mine. But yeah, you do need context. I tend to go through and do all of the context stuff, but like not all of it. She does. Sometimes she'll do the archaeology. Like I'll write an entire episode and she'll be like, but what actually happened in the archaeology? I was like, I'm not invested in that. (laughs) I'll be like, hold my beer. I'm going to figure it out. (laughs) But no, I I think it's cool because like I think it brings two different lenses and two different ways of looking at and Jen and I are so different a lot of the time, which I think just makes the podcast strong. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is we found the same thing in ancient history. So our first season, we realized after we recorded it, it was quite the sausage fest. It was a lot of dudes doing doodly things from doodly scholars. 
what we realized in our second and third season was that it was really difficult to tell some of the stories where you don't see a lot about women, you don't see a lot about people of color, you don't see a lot about the LGBT community. And so what we did going forward was we really tried, even when we're covering stories of people like Julius Caesar, to bring out the other voices who are there and really make it a stronger story that way. I remember when we were recording the Ancient World Stark family, I wrote the entire like second episode and I was like, oh yeah, this is like a family drama. It's all about kids. And Jenny's like, no, you just wrote another Caligula episode. You actually have to go back and rewrite it. I was incredibly lucky that there was a new book by Emma Salvin that had just come out that gave me everything I needed to actually center the book around the sisters and particularly Agrippina. But I hadn't even realized doing my research that I had just completely like kind of put these women on the side of history because they weren't covered in the mainstream sources. And in the primary sources, they're footnotes. And in those footnotes, you find things like, oh, she was very mannish or very lewd or loud or whatever. And you have to break down what they're trying to say, which is like, oh, you mean she actually took agency in her life and wasn't just going to let you do what you wanted to do to her? Yeah, you have to interpret it as a woman reading it and being like, so this is what you think. But what is the likelihood of that being true? And what would I in that position as a woman actually be thinking? And so probably that's it. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So, everybody is clamoring for more Dionysus, and if you're not, you're in the wrong place. And our new season is going to be all about people who rebelled against Rome. If you haven't caught that theme yet, I'm spoiling it for you. We're staying mostly in the Servile Wars, all three of them, the third one being the infamous one led by uh, some guy named Spartacus. Never heard of him before. Really, the person you haven't heard of in that story 
is a woman called the Thracian Lady, who is completely erased from history, but she was a priestess of Dionysus. So many of the people who rebelled against the Roman Empire took Dionysus as their patron god. So we wanted to talk to you about what made Dionysus such a revolutionary god. So Liv, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you found out in Dionysus that is different from the other Greek gods and goddesses? God, I think everything. He's the only god in the Olympian pantheon who has a mortal mother, which is kind of cool, um, except for the times when people say that he was born of Zeus without Semele, which is awful and stupid. That's the Orpheix. I briefly tried to touch on them, but didn't have enough info to dig in more, so I'd love to hear more eventually. Those are like the less women-centric Dionysian discipline, I suppose you could call it. Uh, Part two is all about it where I get really ranty and I'm like, man, I wish they'd torn Orpheus apart sooner. All right. (laughs) The judgy head of Orpheus there to criticize your life choices, (laughs) even though he's been decapitated. Because that myth involves the myth wherein Dionysus doesn't have a mortal mother. His mother is sometimes Persephone, who's also his half sister or full sister and then his dad is his granddad and his dad i already want to cry there's even just the interpretation that because zeus when he killed semele like sewed dionysus into his leg that that constitutes he was his mother and father that's the one that makes me like what that she was there in the first place you just killed her he just like gave her like a an impromptu c-section with his bare hands and jenny found an excellent um, an excellent Google rabbit hole about how thigh might just be a euphemism for testicle. So actually, he was in Zeus's ball sack. Ball sack baby Dionysus. Lovely. Just tucked him right up in there. One of those things where you're just like, you have to think, poor Hera. Like, this is just constant for her. Oh my god, that woman just goes through a lot. She's particularly mean, but also like... She has a great reason to be as mean as she is. She does not, she does, does not come from nowhere. I mean, she does kind of go after like Zeus's victims more than Zeus, but... Yeah, no, she's wrong, but her anger comes from somewhere. She's just wrong in the way she handles it every time. Also, patriarchy, women are not allowed to go against their husbands. Also, Zeus was a god, I guess. There's that. Yeah, and the men wrote the stories, which is my through line through my whole podcast. <laughs> Yeah, oh, look, stories that men wrote. But also, Zeus went after the guys, too. Zeus didn't turn away a pretty whatever. Like, if if it was a pretty sheep, he'd be like, hello. Well, yeah. Swans. Swans. He likes a swan. (laughs) Loves a good cow. Anyway, we were talking about how Dionysus is very different from the other gods. (laughs) Right, yes. Were we talking about that? We were. I think Dionysus has to be one of the least problematic gods. Also the one of wine and drinking and partying. And I think he's basically always portrayed as much younger. He's kind of the baby god. He's from out of town. He's a foreigner. He just likes to come in and fuck shit up, but in kind of a fun way, except for, you know, certain issues in the back eye. Unless you get ripped limb from limb, which isn't fun. Well, no, that's what certain issues in the back eye. (laughs) That would be being ripped limb from limb. Look, he's got two rules. If I come to town, put your glad rags on, get out your thyrsus, drink the wine, do some dancing, and believe in me. And believe that I'm the god and the son of Semele. If you refuse to believe in me, 
it's going to suck for you in a minute. So that brings us nicely to the Bacchae, which we talked about in our first part about Dionysus. We talked a lot about his mythology and how he came to be this sort of exiled wandering god to being worshipped on Mount Olympus. Sort of the very end of our episode, we talked about the Bacchae and why this play, I've only read it in the play format. It's in Metamorphosis, isn't it? Uh think it is. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of who would have transformed to make it into the metamorphoses. It would have been Pentheus because for a little bit they think he's like a wild stag or something and then they realize he is not. Yeah. The thing that I found really interesting about the Bacchae was my experience of it has been as a play and it would have been performed in front of a massive theater at this citywide festival where men and women would be in the audience. And it's so subversive in what you're seeing. And one of the things that to me really stuck out was how the Bacchae is kind of what everyone in ancient patriarchal Greece was afraid women were getting up to when they snuck off into the woods. That's the best interpretation, right? It's like, well, when women aren't here, they're in the woods, getting drunk together, just going insane. There's animals involved and Having sex with who knows whom. All the orgies. And men aren't invited. That was the part that really just got them, right? That the men were not invited to this orgy fest. Yeah, because women get their own shit. Anyway. Right. Well, just the idea that women don't need men to, like, hunt down animals and have sex. Listening to your episode on the Bacchae and also doing Jen's episodes on the Bacchae and thinking, like, this is so othering of women. It's like all women have to be kept on this very tight leash because we've all got this, like, insanity underneath. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of both in that, right, where it does kind of suggest that women can be something on their own and have this kind of agency and individuality but then at the same time yeah it's making them very different very separate all women are about two m4s away from being totally wild and they're sitting right next to you and they've had wine this morning Mm, because that's what they need to get through their day with you yeah it's men keeping them civilized it must have been like when euripides was on the bill they must have been like oh fuck we're all gonna feel bad about ourselves (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah you know euripides must have been like fuck it i'm not gonna win anyway i might as well just piss people off (laughs) how many did he win In terms of those plays, Euripides won only four plus one. And I think the potential plus one is I think he won posthumously. Whereas Sophocles won 24 and Aeschylus won 13. Yeah, you know Euripides must have been like, fuck it, I'm not going to win anyway. I might as well just piss people off. (laughs) Jen's primary idea when we started this podcast was she wanted to do a giant thing on like protest theater. Well, that's like most of what they did. I mean, so many of those because Aristophanes too, right? Just all the anti-war everything in so many of those plays. Fascinating. And he was mostly comedy, wasn't he? He was exclusively comedy, but I'm thinking Lysistrata specifically. Such a good satirical and anti-war play. That is my favorite. And your your version of that is just so brilliant. Thank you. That's one of my favorite ones to do because I'd never read it before and I had no idea. And so I was truly experiencing it for the first time as I was writing it for the episode. And so even I was like, holy shit, this happened in ancient Greece. What the fuck? Like, this is amazing. Sex strike? Yes. Is this the sex strike one? (laughs) Yes. Why don't we recap a little bit? Yeah, give me a recap, please. Well, it's the Peloponnesian War. And so Sparta is fighting Athens and all the men are off to war and all the women are fucking over all the men being gone all the time. Primarily, they're horny as hell. They want the men back so that they can have some sex because it's been a really long time and they're getting really worked up about it. Mama's got needs. Mama needs her biscuit. 
Absolutely. And so they decide to go on a sex strike to end the war so that it just stops for good. They all give up on sex. They all work together, which is fascinating. So like women from Sparta come to Athens to team up to withhold sex and from everywhere else too, but primarily those two because it's the Peloponnesian War. And so they all like eventually just band together in the Parthenon, like lock themselves in the Parthenon being like, we're not going to have sex until you stop the war completely. There is so many scenes of just enormous erections on all the men involved. Like they just walk <laughs> on stage where I think that their whole like cloaks were supposed to be like standing straight up in the air, like two feet off of them as if they're incredibly well endowed. All the men in it are basically just talking to the women, trying to convince them to give in with their enormous erections. And the women are like, absolutely not. Like, we can hold back. You can dream, fellas. When having sex with you, no matter how horny we are, has a 50-50 chance of winding up in pregnancy. And pregnancy has like a 70% chance of winding up in death. Go find a sheep, babe. (laughs) I did not hold a stick that in. Picturing the visuals, like, what I would not give to go back in time and watch any of Euripides' plays, but also the Lysistrata being performed, like, oh, I just can't, I can't fathom how incredible that would be. I often think about how my number one wish in this world is to be able to go back to ancient Greece, but for just those specific reasons. Yeah, more specific. Go back to ancient Greece during the great city Dionysia and see this play by this person. But I also want to see Medea, so. The great city Dionysia, it was really fucking wild so many phalluses it was penis parades the whole city was sticky they just went all around you touched them you were just one with them don't touch anything and then they had these like competitions to dance on oiled wineskins. And so like Jenny and I, you know, at first we were like thinking like a tiny little wine bag. And then I'm like, no, it's like a 20 pound sack of rice type thing that's filled with wine that then they oil it up and then they give you like a little kylinx and they're like, get on and dance. I love that it was oiled. Everything was oiled back then. It was olive oil on everything. <laughs> Lube up the whole city. <laughs> <laughs> Like, how often must those, like, oiled wineskins have broke? And you're just like, whoa, like, riding a wave down. You're just covered and just purple. Yeah, like, that was kind of the point, right? Like, that game. We talked about a bunch of, like, drinking games that were performed. And, like, they were kind of an excuse to just fling wine around. Jen got really stressed out about who's going to clean all this up. (laughs) Yeah, I got really angry. I was like, listen, first off, they're all reclining and throwing wine. It would be a bunch of mates because usually it happened at a symposium. So it's all dudes. And who has to clean up? It's not the dudes. As someone who's renting an apartment, I'm like, fucking hell. My floors, my walls would be covered in wine. And you'd just be getting drunk laying on a couch because you have to play it from a reclined position. Fucking ruins the Airbnb. (laughs) How about we move on to how revolutionary Dionysus was and why he was such a revolutionary god. So Liv, what are your thoughts on why Dionysus appealed to people of all classes, especially women? Well, I mean, I think he just invoked like a freedom in everybody, right? It was kind of like through Dionysus, you can just sort of be whatever you want and be crazy. And this god is not going to come down and rape you at any moment. That's actually a really important thing. And I feel like that you mentioned it when you were saying like the differences between Dionysus and the other gods. Not rapey, kind of a big one. No, he's not really problematic. He also didn't really have that many relationships with women or men. He just kind of, I think he had like a couple of each. (laughs) Ariadne, was she like not his consort? Yeah, Ariadne was the big one. I have a series we're going to do called Theseus was a chode bag. My like third episode is like 
Theseus, awful guy, ruiner of women. Every time you think he can't get any worse, he's like, let me kidnap young Helen of Troy at like six years old. Hold my beer. High standard. The bar's not low. It's underground. He is the worst by such a high margin. Like he's, oh my God, Theseus. Did a woman save you from a minotaur? Did she help you exclusively and all in return for just taking her away from her home? And so you did, but then you just abandoned her on an island where, thank God, Dionysus showed up afterwards. But Although alone on an island, better than being with Theseus, changed my mind. Theseus had a dream that Ariadne had to stay on the island or Theseus's ship was washed out to sea and Ariadne was really sick because she was pregnant. So he put her on shore and then just couldn't get back. Fuck you, Theseus. Then he married his sister. It reminds me of Julius Caesar being like, oh, the currents. I couldn't leave Egypt. And he was with, you know, Cleopatra for nine months. I couldn't leave Egypt. Oh, no. (laughs) That pleasure palace that we lived in had a few places I hadn't banged in yet. It takes a long time to bang in all of the guest rooms in the pleasure palace. I mean, there's so many. Okay, so we were talking about Dionysus. That's the point of this episode. (laughs) Let's get back to Dionysus. (laughs) Because Julius Caesar is not appearing in this episode. He's not invited. Dionysus was revolutionary (laughs) because because he appealed to the people. I don't want to say that in, I mean, I feel like nowadays there's a, a bit of a darkness to certain types of people that really appeal to the overall populace in that way but like populism like there is a dark side to it yeah the thing about Dionysus to me when I was doing the research that I found interesting was he was so mutable like sometimes he's dressed as a very feminine looking young man in a woman's dress sometimes he's got a beard sometimes he's a leopard sometimes he's a bull like he never stays one thing shape changing that's a big part of him but also gender changing he's so fluid you don't see that a lot with the Olympians as far as I'm aware. He is the only one and he's very, yeah, he's like, he's non-binary. He's sort of everything. He's an absolutely fascinating character that there's a lot of talk about how he was brought in from another region. Yeah, but he wasn't. He was one of the oldest ones. He's in Linear B. He is in Linear B, right? But at the same time, that maybe is still kind of part of it. He is so old that he sort of spans beyond. Like if he's in Linear B, then he's in the time when they also worshipped women a lot more than they did in later Greece, right? Because, I mean, that time links up to when there was mother goddess figures everywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, he literally links back to the Minoan snake goddess, who you see all over Crete. Well, yeah, exactly. There's so many goddess figures on Crete. I wrote an entire paper about that. It's like one of the main things I remember from my undergrad. It's like the sheer volume of that snake goddess figure on Crete specifically. And then if you have Linear B in there, you're like, okay, well, maybe Dionysus was best pals with her. I wish we had more. (laughs) Or maybe he was her or maybe she was his high priestess. At the palace of Knossos, there is the snake goddess woman and the lady of the labyrinth who may or may not be Ariadne. This is tinfoil hat here. But the thing we know about the connection to Dionysus is there is an area where the Pentheus would come through. And Pentheus, we know from the Bacchae, is a huge part in that mythology. But what it means is the sufferer. And so they were coming before the god to be purified. It might have also been a term for Dionysus originally before he became Dionysus. We don't know like everything about it, but we do know archaeologically that there is evidence that he was potentially worshipped there. That's fascinating. Just from a purely nerd point of view, thank you. You're very welcome. (laughs) I took like a Bronze Age archaeology course in university and that was one of my favorite things, but I've only done my BA, so it's all pretty limited. But that's, like I said, one of the most memorable ones I took. It's just 
utterly fascinating stuff to go that far back. A lot of it, like, we have to look at and, like, how much of it do we know? Like, we have bits and pieces. I did a whole thing about the worship of Dionysus, and so much of it is so different from, like, our modern religions, where we have a codified book of morality that's written down. But the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans didn't have that. What we get that is sort of our insight into them is their mythology, it's their poetry, it's their archaeology, it's, you know, their burial rites. That's all we really have, and we have to piece that together to sort of figure out how they lived. And sometimes I think we do it really well. And other times I think we're just like, well, maybe it was this. So many of these rituals were secret, like top secret. They wouldn't have written them down for that reason. Yeah, it's so far back with those things. Yeah, we just don't have enough, and especially with linear A and linear B issues and how little they actually wrote down that we care about now. I don't care how much grain was in that storeroom. You guys, why didn't you write down who you worshipped? But also, can we talk about, I don't understand this. This is just me. When they talk about corn in translations, what the hell are they talking about? So I actually looked that up. It was when I was doing all the Alaric stuff. The word corn, I had that same question. Why is there corn? Why? And it's because that particular word was used before it was applied to, you know, what we know as corn today. It was used as a word to sort of refer to wheat crops, like various kinds of wheat crops. Oh, Oh. of course it is. Because, of course, corn is originally maize. That's not what it meant then. As long as I understand where it came from, it's fine. (laughs) I have a question just to see if either of you have the answer offhand, because I've I've never actually sought out Googling it all that much. But do you know why in a lot of Greek, he's still called Bacchus? I read a lot of Greek versions or translations even of Euripides where they use all the Greek names of the gods, except they still call him Bacchus, even the Bacchi. Does it go all the way back to the ban? Is it because the Romans banned Dionysus and repackaged him as Bacchus, which is basically Quirbomim. But I wonder if there's sort of like a, an echo of that where it's like Bacchus is just a safer name. So what happened with Dionysus is he spread everywhere, usually under the name of Dionysus. It's possible when he got to Rome, because he came to the southern boot of Italy first, because that is the Mediterranean wine trade routes, that they started calling him Bacchus. And when he was Bacchus for a while, he also might have still been worshipped as Dionysus when they sanitized the Bacchic religion and changed it to the Liber Pater. What happened was the Bacchanals were these massive gatherings, first of women, They happened for, I think, three days every year. Women would just sneak out of their entire lives, walk away from them and just chill and hang out and get drunk and party and orgy and no men were invited. And then this woman, Kukula Anya, became the high priestess of Dionysus and she said, I have a radical idea. Let's just have a Bacchanal five days out of the month. Let's have it at night. Let's let all the women in, but... As far as men go, if you haven't been initiated into the cult by the age of 18, you're shit out of luck. We'll take the young hot ones and nobody else. The old white men senators were not invited to join. Essentially, everyone who isn't a senator thinks this is great. And what happened, according to the senators, is like assassinations were plotted and wills were changed so that sons or wives who'd have no reason to like want to kill their husband or father all of a sudden now had a reason. Theoretically, according to these senators, like murders and will changes were being plotted at these meetings. To me, it's like you can see Keith Morrison narrating Ancient Rome Dateline in his toga. And he's like, and then they decided to change the will. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it's always the wife or the wife and the son together because they were (laughs) Bacchus. 
As a result, what was it, 7,000 people get rounded up. That's fascinating. So what makes Dionysus relevant to us today? Wine and partying and... I don't know, ladies getting to do cool things. <laughs> yeah. And like throwing off this certain yoke, you know, I think that one of the things that really impressed me so much about Dionysus and what scared people about Dionysus, and this also crops up in the worship of Otter Goddess, the mermaid goddess who was worshipped by the leader of the first Servile War, which we're going to cover in the next episode after this drops. One thing about her worshippers is that they're depicted as very femme. Sometimes they self-castrate. And this like a theme that appears to go along with these revolutions is gender fluidity. Individual men refusing to be part of the gender binary appear to strike at the heart of the patriarchy in a way that made the established ruling class very uncomfortable and upset. You see that going on now. Yeah. I think the thing about Dionysus is he was so subversive because the people who chose to follow him were like women who just left their ordinary lives. And then people who were non-binary. Dionysus was kind of the god of underdogs. Like he himself was an underdog. It was very unlikely he was going to become a god. We talked about why that is. Because number one, like the minute Hera starts admitting that Zeus's sort of demigod children can become Olympians. Oh my god. Well, that's Hera's problem constantly, right? Is like, what are his children going to do? And so to have one become not only a god with that much power, but then be placed amongst the Olympians like her, like he, you know, Dionysus ends up getting himself positioned equal to the rest of the Olympian gods. I mean, he also becomes a major Olympian because Hestia decides, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm out, I'm done. Hestia was the goddess of the hearth. She's in the home of every ancient Greek. In order to have a good home, you would be very aware of Hestia and and she's also Roman you know her in Roman because her name is Vesta Vestal Virgins she's Vesta yeah so she was incredibly important but at the same time she just wasn't in on the drama so essentially there are 12 Olympians sometimes like early on Hestia is one of the 12 Olympians and later Dionysus is one of the 12 Olympians and Dionysus becomes one because Hestia is no longer one do you know is there a story for Hestia deciding to kind of step down like that or is it just kind of when she's gone Dionysus is god there is in some of the sources I found like she just decides like I'm gonna step down her feeling is that I am the goddess of the hearth and home so i will be in everyone's house and everyone is going to worship me done with you assholes i think she's the only one of zeus's sisters he didn't bang maybe she was just tired of like beating him off <laughs> i don't think that came out the way you think it came out <laughs> not literally just like fighting him off fending him off fending him off is the right word fending hestia just she is kind of always over that that was never the life she wanted. She didn't want that dramatic mess. She didn't want to be a part of all that insanity. So I think that it was kind of easy for her to be like, why am I even an Olympian in the first place? Which I think is a pretty valid question. Like, other than being such an important goddess of the hearth, like, she never partook in any of the Olympian madness. Like, Hestia might as well have not been there from the start. So to then be like, nah, I'm good. Like, makes perfect sense. You can also see her point of view, like, listen... My family is messed up. My brother has slept with each of my sisters and produced at least one child with them. So can I just bow out of that requirement? Can I bow out of that requirement? And let's be honest, do you guys need to like court the mortals for them to give you worship? Like every day they're worshiping me. I could just be somewhere else. She's fine as she is. She has that required worship because she is literally the goddess of their homes, like their existence, their comfort level, their everything in their homes is completely surrounding Hestia. So she just has no need to be part of the Olympians. She doesn't have to deal with your bullshit. She's fucking Meryl Streep. <laughs> she 
is Meryl Streep. That's exactly right. <laughs> Everyone compares himself to her, not the other way around. <laughs> so that's Hestia. Just picture Meryl Streep. So do we want to talk about ancient Greek theater and backstage effects? We kind of do. This is a thing like I didn't I wasn't even thinking about it until I listened to some of your episodes live, which again, like many things. And you were talking about the backstage aspect of Greek theater and how it was all built to enable the deus ex machina. God swooping down and saving the story at the last minute kind of a thing. And I was wondering what you knew about that. We know the way the theaters were set up. I think they had a door on either side and a door in the middle. And so one would be to town and one would be away from town and one would be like into the palace. And so they were always kind of set up in that formation. I think there's one example where they did kind of change sets. I don't remember which it is. But basically, almost always it would just be in the same place. And those were the doors where people would come in and out to change what's happening on stage. It was always kind of set outside of a palace or outside of some building in that way where they kind of had that reason or like Lysistrata would have been set out of the Parthenon kind of thing so that you had that one door into a building or like a structure that you could walk through that that would be as if you're walking into a building and then the earlier plays had just a means of getting on top of that building and that would be the deus ex machina position whereas later they actually built like a whole kind of crane like construction that would bring the gods over the stage as if they're coming in from above oh, so it'd be like a crane that lowers them down lowers them kind of above so they would still always be like much higher up they would be above everyone else because they're the gods and often they were on like a chariot or something so in terms of Medea she's on a dragon led chariot coming in from above <laughs> like it's unreal and the fact that she's the only example of it not being a god it's just her coming in on a dragon chariot like what the fuck guys like this is all over kind of thing that just everything about that is so amazing well that's so fun about Euripides too. It's like he's clearly on this woman's side. He's putting her where the gods usually get to be. It's like Shakespeare retelling tales that have been in the zeitgeist forever, but everyone would have understood this woman to be the worst kind of villain. And this is how he's depicting her. I think that's really cool. She had self-preservation. She did everything she did, killing her children, ruining Jason's life, and then was going to peace out to Corinth. Doesn't she become the queen of Corinth eventually? No, she's in Corinth. She goes to Athens and she becomes the queen of Athens because she eventually is Theseus's stepmother and does some shit there too. So then she becomes part of Theseus's story. Lady lands on her feet. Yeah, absolutely. And she lands on her feet because that king comes through, Aegeus. And, and he's like, I need to have a baby. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> oh, what luck. Here you are, Medea. I need some help. And she's like, hey, I might uh, at some point need help. I might be exiled. Who knows why? I who, Who's to say why? Don't ask me why. Let me crash on your couch. Exactly. <laughs> Just no questions asked. Will you take me in? Will you purify me of the sins I'm probably not about to do? And they definitely won't be horrible. Definitely not. You're going to come out looking great in this story. It's going to be great. <laughs> and you'll have a son. Awesome. <laughs> you definitely won't have a C named after you. This is like, you know, such a, again, a tangent, but not really a tangent, but like the Medea story and the way that you told it, like there was something so interesting about women's plight in those days. And okay, I might be messing this up. Was it Theseus? Or no, 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 it was Jason. I'm sorry. It was Jason and the Argonauts and they landed on this island where there were some women in a village and they had just slaughtered all their men and they wanted to rule the city. But then Jason showed up with his dudes, the Argonauts, and they're like, well, I guess we'll just let them come in and rule us. And the best, I mean, most ridiculous part of that is they'd been made smelly by killing all the men. They were cursed with like 
stinking. Yeah, they needed some native deodorant. This is why we advertise. Yeah, native deodorant, exactly. <laughs> native deodorant so that if you are cursed by Aphrodite, you do not have to turn to whatever chode bag lands on your shore. I use the coconut and vanilla flavor. <laughs> not flavor, scent. Listen, if you're cursed by Aphrodite and you have a little bit of a stank, you don't need to have horrible deodorants that have parabens and lead and aluminum and everything else in them. <laughs> Normal deodorants don't have lead. It's aluminum. <laughs> aluminum is the problem, yeah. <laughs> Why is there lead in the deodorant now? This is taking a real dark turn. <laughs> lead. We don't even have lead in our pencils anymore. Arsenic. <laughs> like I knew it was some metal. Cigarette butts. <laughs> like, oh, we've devolved. <laughs> we've devolved. I quit. <laughs> All right. We're only on episode two of season five. Episode two, season five. Jenny quits. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to write any more now. Awesome. Free time. <laughs> no, you still have to write the podcast episode. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, so we were talking about the backstage effects. Right, we were trying to get through a sentence about the backstage effects. Were we? (laughs) We were talking about Medea and how she had her dragon chariot. Oh no, Jenny was asking about the woman who had the stank. Right. And I think that what was so interesting about your episode about that was how you really pointed out that it's like, it's not just because these women were just super thirsty for, you know, the D. It was because... They really, the way that the society was built, they were had to be a lot more dependent on men than we are today. Oh, yeah. Lemnian women. Correct me if I'm wrong. I also thought like what they realized is eventually if they don't have more people, then their society will die out and they won't be able to live on their own. So actually what they really needed from these guys is just a couple babies. Right. Could they not just be sperm donors and then peace the fuck out? That's my question. They needed sperm. <laughs> That's what they wanted from them. Do us a solid, give us some sperm donations, and then get the fuck out. That was the point, was give me some sperm and go. They were kind of like prototypes of Amazons in a different way. Yeah, just, we don't need you. We don't actually want men here. We're totally cool without men. We just need to keep our civilization going. So... What I find interesting in the whole thing is like the Atalanta of it all. Like, I love how in some translations she's on this journey, in some translations she isn't. Like, she's one of my hands-down favorite characters in Greek mythology. And just like, just for the listeners who might not have listened to our Amazon series, Atalanta was the one woman who was on board the Argo with Jason and the chode bags. She was born to a king who was like, I only want dudes. I'm going to expose you. I only want sons. I'm going to leave you out as an infant to be exposed. Exactly. And I believe a bear came along and was like, hey, she she was raised by a bear. Anyway, there's a whole myth that we tell in Amazon's part one, which is sort of her backstory. Liv also tells it. So the interesting thing is she is the only that I can think of Greek heroine. She's the Greek heroine. She goes on a hero journey. She is skilled at archery. She competes in competitions with men and often wins. And she goes on the journey for the Golden Fleece. And What I find fascinating is how little we hear that story. And when we see a lot of the stories about the quest for the Golden Fleece, she is almost always erased. Yeah, any strong women, right? Well, as as long as they were strong in in a way that, you know, like Penelope, who I love, but very different strength. Yeah, she's strong and amazing, but yeah, very different. Hers was not a masculine strength. Atalanta's was a masculine strength or a traditionally masculine strength. I won't actually give it that term. We know from archaeology, when we covered all the stuff about the real life warrior women of the ancient steppe and also warrior queens and generals in that three-part series, there were female warriors who went and fought alongside their men or without men. A lot of times they were in different areas in the Eurasian steppes and other places. I mean, 
being Thracian women definitely had a more warlike culture. Gallic women, didn't they, Jenny? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that one of the issues with that is that traditionally archaeologists digging up graves in the Gallic culture and a lot of other cultures, too. It's really easy to see the grave goods and um, translate more martial looking grave goods like swords and shields and stuff as, oh, this is definitely a man's grave without looking at what the actual skeleton was. So I think that happened a lot. In Gallic archaeology, as opposed to if you look at Celtic storytelling, there are a lot of female warriors in that tradition. So my suspicion is that there are a lot more female warriors in the archaeology than are talked about because they've been just traditionally interpreted as male graves. I'm sure there are a lot of like Mulan type situations too, where it's like the woman just dressed up like a man to be a part of it. And so we'd never know unless somebody actually did the digging to figure out genetically. Yeah, well, they just, I think last week from when we're recording this, we're recording this in January, there was a big article about a grave that was found of a Scythian warrior woman. And it had like her weapons and her clothes and stuff like that. And it is one of the few times that actually, as we said, archaeologists are now really looking into the DNA of the bone to see who was a woman who was a man and looking at the cultures in a totally different way. And to me, it only makes sense that there would have been some kind of martial women in ancient Greece because the goddess of the hunt was a virgin and a woman. Well, and Athena is a badass too. She helped men, but she was still like a warrior. She's such a mixed bag for me, again, because of listening to your podcast, Liv. Athena has a habit of only helping men. She helps a lot of heroes defeat a lot of things. She helps a lot of heroes ruin a lot of women. And she herself often can ruin women as well. But I stand by the issues with Athena are because of who passed down the stories and who told the stories, not because of what Athena's original character might have been. Was she involved with the Medusa story? Yes. Oh, yeah. She is the catalyst in the Medusa story. So she punishes Medusa for Poseidon raping her in that telling of it. Mostly Ovid's telling is in that version. Yeah. I mean, he rapes her in Athena's temple. In Athena's temple. Yes. Thank you. One of the interesting things that you pointed out in that myth, and I pointed this out in the Dionysus episode, is the gods couldn't like actually fight with each other. So a lot of times, particularly women, were like the only punching bags they had. Like mortal women. Mortal women. We saw this with like Hera and Semele in the first episode we did where Hera goes after Semele because she cannot go after Zeus. And in this instance, Athena is going after Medusa because Poseidon rapes her in her, in her temple. And Poseidon has done Athena this terrible dishonor. And she can't actually go and like punch him in the face. Her only recourse here is to punish the poor victim, which is awful. That's essentially Athena. And and I always just kind of stand by. I, I've gotten a little bit of flack for how I treat Athena in that way. But it's not to say that Athena isn't amazing and awesome. And I actually think she's one of the most powerful and wonderful goddesses. It's just that she was the favorite of men. She was the goddess of Athens. She was so many things that made her stories male-centric. Not because if she were a real person, she would have been like that. But because the men were the ones interpreting it and carrying it on and so I think that she became like that not necessarily out of a true character that existed but just because that's how the patriarchy works they loved her and so she became anti-woman because the men loved her so she couldn't be anti-man Athena is like the quintessential cool girl exactly so if you have a woman who you love well she has to be anti-woman too what's fascinating to me is both Athena and Artemis who tend to have like 
more masculine in air quotes attributes to them being goddesses of war or hunt are both virginal goddesses. So it's kind of like you have no chance of ever, ever sleeping with this woman. So she can totally be your friend and be on your side. Whereas you look at people like Persephone, who is the queen of the underworld, and she's always depicted as this beautiful maiden, but her husband is real scary. So, you know, maybe stay away from her. And then most of the other goddesses who aren't muses tend to be quite matronly, like Demeter and Hera. Well, not Aphrodite, but Aphrodite's a whole other story. Yeah, Aphrodite's outside your paradigm here. Aphrodite's got her own thing going on. She's like the one allowed to be sexual in a way that she has agency over it. I live for Aphrodite. You know, she's got a completely different type of power, which is really fascinating. And it talks a lot about sort of what their culture saw as being female power. Like you've got your virginal goddesses who are also able to be good at strategy. And then you've got your sort of beautiful goddesses who are very good at being able to seduce you and get you to like part with whatever else that you don't want to give away because they are so seductive. And then you've got your matron goddesses who are just like kind of sometimes angry moms. So did we cover everything we wanted to cover about ancient Greek theater and staging? Yeah, I mean, we're just on such a tangent. I know. I just could keep talking forever. I know. So Liv, what myth are you most looking forward to covering? Uh, At this point, it's hard, actually. Like, I'm still working on which ones have enough content for me to cover. There's so many gods and goddesses that people suggest to me, but there are so few actual stories to do with them. And I can't have an episode where I just say, this person is the god of this, as much as people want an episode on that person. But so often that's the case. So I'm, I am I need to get more sources, honestly, so I can keep finding a lot more. I've just started the Aeneid, so that's going to be really interesting. And then I can kind of delve a little deeper into Rome, which is going to be kind of fascinating. And then there's, there's little things, but unfortunately, yeah, I need to... I need to get onto more sources so that I can find a little bit more to get into. So the Aeneid's coming up, though. That's the next big thing for you. Yeah, absolutely. So the Aeneid starting right now. I'm about to release an episode. I recorded half of it before I started with you guys this morning <laughs> so that I could be a little lazy this afternoon. I'm excited. You are like productive today. I've had four days off and every one of them has been, OK, how many different things can I get done in these days? And I just uh, truly want to be lazy. I know. I feel you. <laughs> so Aeneas is going to be really fascinating and all the kind of things that come with that. I'm not as familiar with the story as I have been with the other ones. So it's going to be a little interesting for me as well as everybody else. Um, Give us a thumbnail of who Aeneas was. Well, Aeneas was a prince of Troy. He's the son of Aphrodite and and Kizzes. And he's one of the few famous-esque kind of survivors of the Trojan War. So obviously all the big names died in Troy or on the Trojan side at least. But Aeneas survives. And he sort of leaves his completely decimated, destroyed city of Troy to found a new semi-Trojan civilization in Latium, which will go on to become Rome. So essentially, Aeneas is the founder of Rome, and the Aeneid is the very propaganda-filled story of the founding of Rome, written by Virgil during Augustus when they wanted to make clear that Rome was the best place in the world. And also that Augustus was descended from a god. This is that whole deification that was going on. Because Augustus had a face you wanted to slap. And, you know, you can't slap his face if he's descended from a god. You're not allowed to punch Augustus. He's related to Aeneas. Can you slap that hair? That very distinct hair? (laughs) What is it called? The fork and claw? If that's his hair? Is that it? Is that what it's called? I don't know. I think it is. If you see that, then you know that the sculpture is trying to depict Augustus. I think so. I mean, I just know he's just gotten this very smug. I can't remember like the later like statues like busts of Augustus, but I always remember the young ones. Oh, yeah. He's so high on himself. 
Oh, Liv has just done, as of January, a really epic series on the Epic of Gilgamesh. My experience of this story, which I knew nothing about, has been through podcasts. And Liv does an incredible job on it. And it's really one of those stories that we don't hear it covered enough in Western media. I can't take praise well, but I really appreciate it. That's really nice of you to say. It was really fun doing that. And I I think it's important to cover. I did a thesis on it and I just reread it before we started this episode because I was like, oh, my God, what did I even say? And it's all about how feminist Gilgamesh was when I was 19. I was really excited about your new series, Liv, about things that the Western world did not invent. A series brought out of anger, but let's make it fun. (laughs) Because the Romans were like such appropriators. They just appropriated all the shit. Most of the Greek gods. (laughs) And I don't even necessarily blame them. Like I blame the later cultures, right? Like the ones that looked back on ancient Greece and ancient Romans said they did everything best. Everything they did was first. And it's not even necessarily that if you look back that something's wrong. It's just that we're not taught the things that the people who weren't white did first. We're just not taught them. Like Mesopotamia is not talked about to the degree of Greece and Rome by such a huge like gap whereas they did everything before Greece and Rome most of it they wrote stories they wrote things down they invented the wheel they invented astrology like all these countless things storytelling you know yeah exactly okay so Liv tell us all about your novel so uh, yeah, I've been working on a young adult novel about Greek mythology for an actual decade. And I'm just finally, I wrote it truly over a decade ago, like in 2009, I started writing this thing, actually 2008, I think. And then it actually spurred me to like go to university and work in publishing and do the whole thing. And then I finally went back to it and was like, oh, let's make this book something that I actually want to publish now. And so for the past couple of years, I've been working on making it complete and something I actually am proud of. Basically, it is a young adult modern and ancient retelling of the story of Cadmus and Harmonia and not exclusively it's really like as if Cadmus and Harmonia happened but then there are sort of modern equivalents dealing with ramifications of being in some way related to those ancient hero and goddess. Cadmus is a prince of Phoenicia so he is from sort of the east and he goes in search of his sister who was kidnapped by who zeus oh i thought you were gonna say theseus i was like ready no europa cadmus's sister is europa who very famously was kidnapped by zeus in the form of a white bull and brought to crete where she founded the bull kind of dynasty there but cadmus went looking for her and eventually had to give up but instead he spoke with athena who told him to go and follow a certain cow and where that cow lay down he would found the city of Thebes, named after the ancient city of Thebes in Egypt. And so he did in Boeotia, and he kills a dragon of Apollo, and then plants the teeth of the dragon and upspring his first men that help him on this journey, because sometimes when you plant dragon teeth, dudes grow. Oh, right. That happened in the story of Medea, too, right? Yes, it is not the only one. (laughs) I mean, this is immediately what I think of when I have some teeth, like... Dragon teeth. Yeah, you can't plant your own teeth. Oh, I can't plant my teeth and grow some dudes. (laughs) Or Heloise's teeth. You can't. No. Don't get those Craigslist dragon teeth. I'm warning you. So, yeah, so Cadmus does that, and then he founds the city of Thebes. Harmonia is sort of set to marry him. 
Hermione is the daughter of Aphrodite and Ares, so she's technically a goddess, but uh, she and Cadmus get married and found Thebes, and they live a very happy life, but then their children have an incredibly cursed life, and uh, thus revolves my novel. Ooh, this sounds awesome. Sounds amazing. How far along are you? Oh, God, it's done. I just need to perfect it so that I can actually submit it to agents. So she's in the same place you are, Jenny. Oh, have you written as well? I have. I have a um, romance novel set during the fall of Rome, and my hero is Alaric of the Visigoths, and I am currently editing it with Jen's help. So how do you actually balance your time between the podcast and working full time and writing a novel? Yeah, no, I honestly don't. I have my job and then like I usually have one or two days off in a week and then I podcast. So there was one period where I had some extra days off. So I was able to finally finish the book. But now I have to find the time to do all the editing and stuff. So uh, yeah, no, I so desperately want more time in my life. I want to be a full-time podcaster and writer so that I can do all those things so much better. That's the dream, really. Not having a day job is the dream. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Liv, for coming on to our podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me here. It's been so much fun. Perhaps too much. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming on. Should we, uh, Liv, would you like to plug your shit? Um, this is where we usually plug our shit. <laughs> Okay, well, so my podcast is available everywhere. It's called Let's Talk About Myths, Baby. So it's available everywhere. And then uh, on social media, I am Myths Baby everywhere. Hey, we will put links in our show notes and all of our social when we put this up. Thank you for coming on and we will be back in two weeks. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.